This book is not a book to be feared. It's a book to be loved. And God has, has good thoughts of us. And he intends great things for us. And the things that are happening, we, we look at it now, but we, don't, we sometimes don't want to put it all together the way God wants us to from his word. And he wants to bless us. Not only does he want to save us, first of all, but he wants to bless us and help us. And even through the trials and storms of life, this is a book that reminds us that God is with us. Now, when this was authored, God used a man by the name of John. John, uh, he was first, they tried to martyr John and they were unsuccessful in their attempt to kill him for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So instead, they said, we can't, uh, we can't come back to try to martyr him the second time. This is what we'll do. We'll send him to Patmos. Patmos was a little island that where it was surrounded by sharks, isolated. They would send people there basically where they would die of insanity and loneliness. So they left him there alone on the Isle of Patmos. That's what they did to these prisoners that were sent there. So John is all alone. He now, they have tried to take his life unsuccessfully for the gospel's sake. God has used him. He later becomes, they believe, the first one of the great pastors of the church of Ephesus and a lot of different church history books that you'll read will say Ephesus maybe in a period of just a year or two had 100 to 150,000 converts. That's revival. And John was used by God for that. And here's the reason why. Now, if anybody ever had anything all against them and working against them, it was John. But here's John on the Isle of Patmos. He's all alone. He has nobody to talk to, but it's the Lord's day. And the Bible says he was in the spirit of the Lord. Isn't that something how everybody else had forsaken him? He's all alone. They now put him at a point where he's isolated, but they cannot cut him off from God. I'm here to tell you they cannot keep you from the Lord. I don't care what happens. I know we went through a terrible thing with COVID. And I, I had one family. I was telling the pastor yesterday, I preached 21 funerals in 30 days. Another span of 11 days, I had 10 funerals in 11 days. All 10 of those died from COVID. One family member, they were so heartbroken and at the beginning of COVID and they said, oh preacher, the thought that I can't stand is that my loved one died alone. And I said, listen, I know you're hurting, but I wanna tell you something. I wanna make you a promise from the authority of the word of God. They didn't die alone. You may not have been able to be there and family may not have been able to be there, but the Lord was there with them and precious in the eyes of the Lord or the death of his saints. So John says, I know that I can't see anyone around me, but I know you're here, Lord. You're right here with me. And he started to praise God for what he had done. And he said, suddenly I heard it. It was the voice of many waters. I fell as though I was dead. And he said, he came to me and he touched me and said, John, I want you to write some things in a book. He said, write and tell them I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive now and forevermore. Amen and have the keys of death and of hell. Tell them, John, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He said, John, you let them know that I am 
alive and alive forevermore and I'll never leave them nor forsake them even when they're isolated and all alone. Well, I've got a lot I'd like to say there, but I've got to move. So he starts in this letter and you start into the first three chapters and the first three chapters are letters written to seven different churches. Now, we may disagree on this, and that's fine. I believe there's a twofold meaning to that. Number one, they were the churches of Asia. Asia and Asia Minor. And they were literal churches. Local assemblies of believers that had come to Christ in times of great persecution. So he's writing these churches, these letters. Not only do I think they represent literal churches, but I also believe that they represent church ages. In other words, there's different ages or stages of the church in church history. The last church that they wrote to was the church of Laodicea. And of course, that was the lukewarm church. I believe that's the church that we're in presently. That's the church that said we're increased with goods and have need of nothing. But the Lord said that I say that thou art poor and wretched and miserable, naked and blind. And he said, because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And of course, Laodicea was the place where they'd run that water down to, through those aqueducts. By the time that it got there, it was hot, lukewarm water and it was distasteful. And he said, because that church is distasteful, I'll spew them out. That's the church that the New Testament writers talked about that had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. Seven churches, seven ages. But yet, there's one in particular that caught my attention. Because even though their ages, I think there's some characteristics in these churches that could probably be said about all churches. But one church in particular seemed to have three different churches inside of it. Three separate groups. Now, I think we've, we've been in church long enough to say it is possible to have a church within a church. Amen. It sure is. Because groups have a tendency to drift toward groups. I, I watch new folks come into the church and if they come into our church, I can watch by who they who they seem to go toward, I can tell a lot about their personality traits. And that's not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand me. And, and that's true of life in general. That's true of society in general. You'll find like kind draw. Like kind. When you get to chapter three, he says, he says the same thing he says to all seven churches under the angel of the church in Sardis. I wish I had time to tell you every church has an angel. And he said, under the angel in the church of Sardis, right? These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest. But the next phrase, three words, and art dead. 
Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Then the next phrase, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. Now what are the three categories that you see here? Well, first of all, in that first verse, I see there's a group in the church that is dead. They are dead. It is possible, it is possible to be part of a dead church. And in every church, there's some folks that yes, they're in the building. Yes, their name may be on a membership roll. Yes, they can say, that's the church I attend. But yet, they're dead. I didn't expect you to be too happy about that. The word church or churches in these first three chapters appears 19 times and then suddenly out of nowhere when you get to the the fourth chapter until the end of the book of Revelation, you don't read anything else about the church because there comes a time where the church is no longer on the earth. The church is with, with the bridegroom. The church is then represented as the bride. So here's this church that even though they are there, they don't know why they're there. They are dead. Now that's the age that you and I are living in. We're living in an age where that if we're not careful, we can become part of a dead church. I'm not talking about being loud. Now nobody loves to praise God any more than I do. It's not how loud you are. It's the fact that you know you have life from Christ in you. I'm talking about abundant life, everlasting life, eternal life that only the Lord can give to us. There is a group of people that yes, they're there, but they don't know that the Lord has offered life to them. They're just there because they grew up there. They think that's the right thing to do. It looks good. They, want, they don't want to, to be looked down upon. So they say, yes, I'm part of the church. I don't know how it is here, but almost every day in, in our news outlet in our area, we have new obituaries. And it seems like that everybody seems to be a part of the church even when they weren't. Now, why is the church dying? Oh, you don't want to know? Okay, let's move on. It all started in the 18th and 19th century. Started with a man at the beginning of that. There was a man by the name of Thomas Paine. By the end of that period of time, another man came along by the name of Darwin. Thomas Paine was an atheist, 
Some will argue the fact, no, he was agnostic, but he was atheist. He denied God. He, he said that he would live to see the death of Christianity and he would live to see the death of the Bible. Do you know that 100 years later, the very printing press that he printed his, his pamphlets on that went out to promote atheism and his propaganda, that his house was bought by a Bible society and the printing presses were used to print the word of God. He was dead for years, but the church went on. And the dead will think that it really cannot survive without them. Can I tell you something? That the church was just fine before I came into it and when I'm dead and gone, the church will still be just fine. God's not waiting on us to determine whether the church is gonna do well or not do well. He just lets us be a part of it. But the age of reasoning brought about death inside the church. Because now everything is based merely on reasoning. But the problem with that is you can't show me in the word of God where God is pleased by reason. I know he says, come now, let us reason together. But really stop and think about it. What can you teach a God that knows everything? What are you gonna tell him that he don't already know? What are you going to show him that he can't already do? What do you think you're going to be able to do to impress God when he's the one that created this world? In seven days, uh, he spoke it into existence. In the six days, he created it all. Uh, and at the end of all of it, the seventh day he rested, looked on all of it and said, it is good. Uh, thank God he is God uh, over the universe and God over our life. but it goes in cycles. And now we're back to that cycle again where we feel like we're back to the age of reasoning. And people will say, how can a reasonable person believe in a God that they cannot see? How can you have faith in a God that you can't touch with your hands? that you're not able to look with your eyes and lay your eyes on, that you're not able to hear with you. How can you believe something like that? Well, let's get this right. You can know him. And the only reason that you can't see him, hear him, touch him, communicate with him is because you're dead. When somebody is dead, and I'm not being morbid here, but I do enough funerals and I can testify to this. Do you know that when the corpse is lying in a casket, that that corpse absolutely has no spirit in them at all? You can tell that corpse, uh, you can tell that corpse all you want to, that loved one, the Lord loves you, the Lord cares. Or you can say, what you ought to do is get up. You can say, God is good, but there's not gonna be any response because there's no spirit there. It is a body without a spirit. That's what we have to watch for the church. If we're not careful, we'll be all spirit and no body or all body and no spirit. And if you have a body... Without a spirit, you've got a corpse. If you've got a spirit without a body, you've got a ghost. But the Lord wants us to be his body and demonstrate his spirit as well. 
So what we do, we do through the unction and the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Another thing is that when, when death has come, there's no response. You can walk up to a corpse and pinch the corpse and you'll never hear them say, ouch. They have no feeling. And that's what we're hearing now. Oh, you base too much on feeling. No, I don't, I don't base my salvation on feeling. But by the way, I don't base my salvation on intellect either. If you are saved by your mind and you're merely saved by what you know, who would set the standard to say you have to know this much in order to be saved? Who would say your IQ has to be a certain amount? And what about this? What happens if you get dementia and you lose your mind? You're not saved by what you know. You are saved by what you believe and who you believe in. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You're saved by grace through faith that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no response. There's no feeling. So they are dead. But by the way, when you're more than a corpse, when you're alive, you can feel and you can respond. And the spirit is alive in you. Do you know that's what happens when you get saved? Your spirit, you're dead, the Bible says, in your sins and transgressions. We all are dead in our sins and transgressions. The day you start living is the day you come to Christ. That's when life begins. So there is a dead church. Then he tells us in, in verse two, he says, to strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Some are dead. Some are ready to die. They're not dead yet. There's still hope. That's why we have meetings like this. I'm more than just an evangelist. I'm a revivalist. And the difference is I believe that the church needs an awakening. And I don't think we'll really start to see people get saved until there's an awakening within us. Well, how does that awakening come? He tells us here. He says, first of all, we've got to recall. We've got to remember. He said, remember. That's what he teaches us in verse three. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. He says, remember. And hold fast. He said, you've got to resolve. You've got to make your mind up. See, we're at this place now where there's a separation of those that are real and those that are not real. And it's going to get worse as we get near the coming of the Lord. And your faith will be challenged. And people will say, why, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. We saw it happen over and over again. And it'll continue to happen. But you're going to have to have a resolve to say, I'm going to stand for God no matter what. Hold fast. Hold fast. We need a resolve. We need to make our mind up. We need to have a fortitude about us that I'm not talking about just having an attitude where we're militant wanting to physically fight. I'm talking about a spiritual battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. 
Our battle is not where we're focusing. Our battle, our real enemy is against the devil himself. He's the one that uses these things to come against the church to try to make us think we're not going to survive. But you look, the church is still alive and doing well. COVID couldn't stop it. There's not a virus gonna stop it. There's not a law gonna stop it. You can't stop children of God that make their mind up to say, God has saved me and I'm determined to tell others that Jesus saves. We need to get stirred about the fact that the devil is now using these things I'm talking about to get our children. He's after our children. Well, why would you say that? Come travel with me across America. I go into church after church after church that the youngest person there a lot of times 60 years old. No children at all. No children anywhere. Do you know David, when he went against Goliath, Saul offered his armor and he said, I haven't proved the armor. I, I, don't, I don't want the armor. He said, with my hands, I've killed a lion and I've killed a bear. You know why he killed a lion and killed a bear? He tells us why. He said, because they took a lamb. He said, once that they took the little lambs, something roused up inside of me that said, you're not gonna get the lambs. And it's time for us as a church to say, listen, they're not gonna brainwash our kids. They're not gonna get our kids. They're not gonna teach them that there's not a God and that heaven's not real. They're not gonna teach them that there's not a Bible and that you can't trust the Bible. We need to come back to some basics and say drugs aren't gonna get our kids. The devil's not gonna get our kids. I don't care what the devil tells you. God has a group of people that he's wanting to raise up and I thank God for the young people that's here tonight. I pray that God gives you the spirit of David and that you'll do greater things than what we've ever been able to do. We've got to make our mind up. I don't know how many churches are represented tonight. And don't worry, I'm not gonna go much longer. You may not like me, but you understand what I say. I don't know how many churches we've got represented tonight, but this is true of every church around the world, what I'm about to say. Every church, the church I'm at, the church you're at, any other church you want to name, every church is one generation away from extinction. You fail to reach the kids You fail to reach the kids. And as we get older and we get sick and we die, it's a picture of what is ready to die. Could I ask this tonight? All of the young people, and I'm being generous here, 21 years of age, and let's make it 25, go to college age. Some I know go on to their mouth. 25 years of age and under, would you stand throughout throughout the building. All young people, 25, you don't worry, I'm not gonna come to you. 25 years of age. The rest of you, look around. Look around. Aren't you glad that they're here tonight with their schedule and everything else that's going on that they're here? Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. 
I hope you looked around. Thank you. You can be seated. I hope you looked around. And I hope you make up your mind. These kids are worth it. They're worth every dime we invest in them. They're worth every opportunity that we give them. You say, well, they don't do it as good as what, what I do it. Well, maybe you're not doing as good as you think you are. They've got to learn and gain experience too. But we've got to make up our mind to say, we've got to reach our children. And, and people say, why preacher kids don't want this? Hey, folks, I'm here to tell you, you don't know what living's all about until you get saved. The greatest time you ever have in all of your life is when you're with God's people. And we need to tell our young people that it is worth it to serve the Lord. A dead church, a dying church. But even in Sardis, even in Sardis, there was a few. He said that they're going to walk with me in white. Well, what would you call that church? I would say there was still the dedicated there. Every church still has the dedicated. They're the ones that wash the windows. They're the ones that don't get paid to do a job, but they do it anyway. In about a week, I put out a little challenge to the young girls and young ladies in the church to have a day where they could just come into the church and do a spring cleaning together and maybe have a little fellowship after. And, and I said, they, they proposed it to me and I said, I like the idea. They said, if we could just get 100 women to give 100 minutes. And on the first day, 102 women signed up. They're way beyond that now. Now, I know that seems like a small thing on a Saturday morning, 100 women to give 100 minutes of their time. But in the day that we're living in, it's still time. The most valuable possession that anyone has is your time. And they're giving their time. And I told them already, get ready for a blessing dedication we've got preachers I don't know 27 29 preachers in the church now some of them every week go out in pulpit supply into churches where there's only 10 12 15 16 people they'll go into nursing homes every Sunday some of them run to a nursing home after our service preach and have a service and go to the jail and have a service dedicated back on Sunday night or standing in a pulpit somewhere sharing the word of God and not only do it but love that they're doing it. Amen. Hey, we still got a group that's dedicated. Amen. You need to know that because of him and what he has done, he's the reason that we need to remain faithful to him. People tell me constantly, I went through a couple six spells. I'm not getting into all of it. On the one, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to even speak again. They thought I had a stroke while I was preaching. And I thank the Lord for my primary care. She attends our church and finally got me in Cleveland. And after a long regimen of treatments, I was able to finally get my voice back and period of weeks and months I was right back in the pulpit but had so many side effects and 
The church loved me, and I really, I really didn't know if I'd get back in the pulpit again or not. It's a funny thing, you know. You may not be able to, but it never leaves you. It's always way down in here. And when I came back, the very first sermon that I preached, I preached on the keepers, the people that keep the stuff. David couldn't go after the enemy after they destroyed Ziglag if somebody didn't keep the sheep. If somebody didn't keep the carriage, he turned it over to the keeper. Thank God for dedicated people. Their names aren't in the bulletin. They don't get the recognition, but they're dedicated. I've traveled over four and a half million miles preaching this book now. I've missed a lot of time with my family. I get sick of hearing whiny preachers say, put your family first. Well, I know what they're trying to say, but the truth of the matter is they're just not dedicated. My family don't hate me for going. I've missed all types of things, and I'm not embarrassed to meet God with it. You can do the best you can. Your kids will still make wrong decisions and go wrong ways. But they don't resent the fact that I went. Do you think they resent that I'm up here tonight? My wife don't resent it. Don't feel sorry for us. Don't feel sorry for us. The truth of the matter is, you love your family. You love your church. And you love your community but you better love God more than anything else. You better love him. Be dedicated to the gospel. I didn't mean to preach this long, but I'll give you this and then I'll close. Napoleon, he was conquering the known world at the time of his reign. And to conquer new areas, he needed more soldiers and it got hard to find soldiers that would fight so he started what was called conscription for those of you that are history buffs you know all about being conscripted into the military in my age it was drafting but he would conscript soldiers to fight so the conscription would come about and with the conscription you had to serve. There were some occasions where that they could possibly get out of going to fight. Like if they just had a new baby, if there was sickness, their wife was sick, a few, few exemptions. But if they didn't go, the only way they could stay home, they had to find somebody to fight in their name. They came to the door of a man and said, you've been conscripted to fight. He had a newborn baby. He said, I just, my wife just had a baby. I can't go. A friend of his saw them coming. He came and he said, don't worry. I'll go in your name. So he went in his name and fought. And on the battlefield, he died. About two years later, they came back to the man's house, knocked on his door and said, you've been conscripted to go fight. He said, uh, I can't fight. 
They said, what do you mean you can't fight? What's your reason? He said, I'm dead. They said, that's ridiculous. You're not dead. You're right here in front of us talking to us. He said, no, you don't understand. Napoleon conscripted me two years ago. A friend of mine went and fought and died in my name. So if on paper I am dead, I can't fight the second time. I've already died. Well, they argued the point until finally it went to Napoleon himself. And they made the decision. And the decision was this. Napoleon said, after giving it careful consideration, the man is absolutely right. It is impossible to die twice. So since another died in his name, his battle days are over. Let me tell you something, folks. Stay dedicated to it. There's another, his name is Jesus, that died in our name and took our place. And because he died for us, we can say we don't have to worry about death. Thank God he took care of that when he gave us everlasting life. And he's concerned about giving you life and giving you peace. And he wants to change your life. They're coming to sing. Your heads are bowed throughout the auditorium.